Hey there, welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast, where you'll hear advice from experienced safety leaders on how to protect your people and business. I'm your host, Peter Steinfeld. Today's episode is all about Stractical Intelligence, where tactical and strategic intelligence combine to create safe and smooth operations. Our expert today is Mo Baloch, Geopolitical Risk Manager at American Airlines. Mo has decades of experience in intelligence and risk analysis, from the U.S. Army and Department of Defense to ExxonMobil, Amazon, and Apple. Let's listen in. Mo, welcome. Thanks for being here. It's great to have you in the studio. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, can you start by telling us a little bit about stractical intelligence? It's a fantastic word, so can you break down what it means? Sure. I'd like to give uh, credit where credit's due. So a friend of mine, Laura Lee, back at Amazon, coined the term, and we both ran with it and have been using it ever since. So basically, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a combination of strategic and tactical intelligence that you've combined, and it works more in the center of the sweet spot, which is a more around operational intelligence. And what led you to create that word? There must have been something that was going on. Yeah, so we, we were managing two different teams. Mine was more on the strategic side of the shop, and hers was very tactical with operations, the deliveries for Amazon.com, that sort of thing. And we would meet quite a bit together, and we started calling the meeting the Stractical Meeting. So that's where it came from. Okay, great story. What's it like for you now at American Airlines? Does it lean more strategic or more tactical, or do you adapt based on the situation? Yeah, we definitely adapt based on the situation, depending on whether we have rocket attacks in Israel or a civil unrest in Haiti or even a terrorist incident somewhere like France. Just depends on what's going on in front of us and the team quickly adapts to the situation. So being a company that works all around the world, constantly having people in just about every country, it seems like, there's got to be a lot of challenges that go into managing that. So you're probably bouncing back and forth from the strategic to the tactical, probably on an hourly, if not minute by minute basis. So what's your approach to gathering intel when something happens like in Israel not too long ago? Yeah, so we really lean heavy on the analysts on the team. They're encouraged to go out and visit, especially our high-risk, high-threat environments first, and then the medium to low-threat environments, because obviously things can go zero to 60 in any city in the world, right? So the analysts are the key to getting the best intelligence that we can. And then what that really means is that the analysts on my team are connected to their counterparts locally in the cities that we operate whether it's a private sector contact that might be at McDonald's or Starbucks or Walmart or what have you. It could also be the U.S. Embassy where their government counterpart is also sitting there, as well as the regional security officers, the FBI legats, and all of the others that are operating in that space. That's interesting. So walk me through the day of one of your analysts. Are they just constantly reaching out to these people, asking for the latest? Do they wait to see that something might be happening and then they reach out to them? How does that work? Because I can imagine it can be overwhelming. Yes, so we definitely work ahead. We don't wait for anything to happen before reaching out. The key to this networking and relationship building really is not just the initial meet and greet with your counterparts and the U.S. government, but more importantly, it's about fostering those relationships over time, right? So we don't just go there once and we're done. We tend to travel back and forth to these cities all the time as much as we can get out there, especially, again, the high-risk environments because you want to build those contacts very, very strong. The whole goal really is to make sure instead of, you know, waiting for, for an email or asking for something from one of these folks, they'll reach out to us and say through WhatsApp signal or a phone call that, hey, you might want to watch out for this city, this part of the city, because things are getting a little crazy in that, in that area. And how do you build that kind of relationship where people feel encouraged to just reach out to you with that kind of information? 
it's a give and take, right? So you have to make sure that you're giving them something in return. To put it bluntly, we, American Airlines, along with the other airlines, are basically the ride out of that city for the U.S. government and others out there, right? So when things really, really go south, obviously the first option is to shelter in place, kind of assess the situation for 24 to 48 hours. And if we find out things are going bad very quickly, then of course, you might go all the way up and ramp up to say, we might be exiting that city. If it comes to that, what that means then is they would lean on us for a ride out of that, out of that area. Now, are you and your team watching the whole world equally 24 by 7? Or do you try to focus on the places that seem to be the hottest? Yeah, so luckily for us at American Airlines, we have an entire department and another team that does this on the tactical side of the shop. They're called security operations, the SecOps team. It's led by a peer of mine, Shane, and his team is 24-7, unlike mine, which goes in during mostly business hours. Of course, we ramp up if needed. We're on call 24-7-365, but they're the eyes and the ears of the company. We give them our intel requirements or our information requirements to scan the horizon for. And then if they see something that's hitting that bar that we've asked, then we get a phone call or a message that says, you might want to watch out for X, Y, and Z because you had asked us to take care of this. And then we take it and run from there and decide what should we do next. So do you think it's important for organizations, if they can afford it, to have two separate groups, one that focuses on the strategic, one that focuses on the tactical, and then they just come together and work, but they have fundamentally different disciplines, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's really the skill set of the analyst that's very different, right? So when we first start out in the government or the military or, or, or even any public department, really, when you think about it, whether it's law enforcement or anything else, you're taught to be a watch officer first. You're the scanner. You're looking at the horizon. You're looking out for certain things that the, you've been asked to look out for. These are basically what we call triggers and indicators. Once you move up in your career, what happens is you start getting more into the sweet spot of that operational space. And then finally, once you've got a little bit of subject matter expertise and what we call the benefit of failure, also known as experience, under your belt, then we go and we say, okay, fine, you can now start operating in this strategic environment where you need to really know the nuts and bolts of what does that city look like? How is it different? And to be able to sense the difference between things going higher in risk or decreasing in risk. So if you think about the organization that's out there, the average organization, when would they want to start thinking about maybe hiring people who focus on the tactical side and then maybe growing into the strategic side? It's a really good question. Something that sometimes gets lost on the job description, the JDs that HR might put out. So it's really going to depend on the company and its portfolio and its footprint and its assets. Where are they? You know, where are they in the world? What cities? What's the risk like in that city? Do they have experience operating in that city? Are their employees local or are they expats or are they a mix of the both? The risk tolerance is very different for an expat versus someone that lives and operates in that city and maybe was even born in that city and, and raised there. And what really makes the difference between someone who's good at tactical intelligence versus strategic? For tactical intelligence, you need someone that's almost like a 911 dispatcher, right? You need to be able to do multiple things. You're basically an octopus. You're getting phone calls. You're, you're looking at triggers and warnings and indicators. You're assessing risk. You're looking at what we call decision points, which are much more nuanced than just your basic triggers. And then to be able to know who do I need to call when something hits the fan, that's another critical part of it. And then for the bulk of them, they haven't really visited these cities so there's that, that little, bit of, little bit of a lean that they need to have with their strategic analysts. So a lot of working together with different departments. What about tech? It seems like that if you have your hands in a lot of different pots, you have to know how to use tech really seamlessly. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Tech's a very big key part of it today more than ever. When you used to have to have a team of 30, 40, 50 analysts, now you can easily swing by with 10 or 12. As long as you know how to use your tech, you're very well versed in it. You know it inside out. And your vendor is more a partner than they are someone that sells you something and walks away to the next deal. So we, we love working with partners that put skin in the game with us, not just financially, but really with are you going to continue to teach us how to move and raise the bar with the tech that you've sold us? Where are the pitfalls? Where are the shortfalls? What's next on your horizon? What are you going to do next that's better than any other vendor? All of those things. Yeah, that's an interesting point because unlike other software products that are just software, this is something that's humans and software, right? And things are changing so much. So it sounds like that's a really important part of a, a relationship when you're looking into something like this. Absolutely, yep. Well, what kinds of threats do you see on the horizon that organizations should be prepared for? One of the biggest things that's that's really ramped up lately, unfortunately, is workplace violence. And it's not just at our workplaces. It's really a larger part of the threat that's out there, whether you go to a shopping mall or you're out and about doing your regular day. I think that's one of the key things that's changed, say, over the past five to seven years. It's picked up quite a bit. And of course, we have to remember the world was pretty much under lockdown with the pandemic. And now that things are coming back, the pendulum is swinging again, you know, where it was more people, more problems, more threats, more exposure for the ones that don't cause problems. All of those things are now coming back. So it's more a natural progression than anything else. And when it comes to workplace violence, being an airline, it, you've got most of your people working at airports and they have the, the benefit of having people go through security, but that doesn't keep people from going crazy. So it yeah. sounds like you still have to deal with a lot of that at the airports as well. Right. The airports, I feel pretty well covered because of all of those things that you said, right? The controls and mitigations are in place. You have local governments, you have law enforcement, you have even military at certain airports in the world. And the airports are basically the crown jewels of countries. They want to make sure nothing happens there because it impacts not just travel, but in a lot of these countries, it impacts their tourism, which might be the backbone of the economy. But I'm also, you know, pointing more towards the offices themselves. So obviously we have a large campus. We have a lot of people in our campuses. So our security team, larger security team, corporate security itself, was able to get the Fort Worth Police Department to come in and open up a small satellite space at our campus. Now that helps them go respond a lot faster. And because we're on the edge of Fort Worth and Dallas, in that area where we have three to five different police departments, on average response time was could be anywhere from nine to 13 minutes, sometimes even higher. But now because of that, the fact that we have a local satellite office, response time would be much, much, much shorter. You know, that's interesting. I don't think a lot of organizations know that that's something that would even be possible for them. How, how big of an organization do you have to be before maybe your local PD or the sheriff's office would be willing to set something up locally on your campus? Yeah, I think you do have to be a, obviously a, a big player in, in, in this field, but it's also the effect on the economy itself, right? God forbid something like that happens at our campus, it would basically reverberate between the entire ecosystem, right? It hits all of the airlines, all of those sort of things, and it raises questions on the safety and security of our own campus, much less the planes and things like that. So I think it's super critical and important for us to be able to keep our employees safe at all times. So it's probably a combination of size of organization plus the criticality that you are to the infrastructure. Absolutely. And the resources of the local PD. Yeah. And one thing we talk about on the show a lot is that the last thing you should be doing in the middle of a crisis is trading business cards with your first responders. So can you talk more about that? How important do you feel it is to reach out ahead of time and know who's going to respond if there is an emergency? 
Sure. And again, this is more a space that my peer operates in and is responsible for, but I'll kind of blend it into my, my area and my, my portfolio, right? My area of responsibility. For us, it's also knowing that our analysts are now, again, able to travel out to a lot of these cities, meet with the local police department at those airports. For example, one of my analysts went over to Tel Aviv. She has responsibility for the Middle East and met with not just the uh, U.S. Embassy folks out there in that city, but also our security department, the local IDF folks, the Israeli Defense Forces, and then also the police department itself. That's great. Well, what keeps you motivated and inspired to do your job? One of the biggest things I love doing is, I love stress and chaos, right? So when there's not a security solution to something and it's brand new and, and, the, and the company's figured out that we've got a problem, we want to help control and mitigate something down to a level of risk that's acceptable to the company. I love operating in that space. So long story short, I love building new intelligence and security programs or maybe expanding on them and making them bigger, better, faster, and quicker. And then the second thing that I love is seeing the analysts grow as they go in their roles from watch officers to intel analysts, and then maybe even go somewhere else like the U.S. government and the military to go out there and serve. I'd love to uh, dig further into the psychology behind why you love stress and chaos, but we're limited on time today. Sure, absolutely. (laughs) Maybe for another day. Exactly. (laughs) Well, do you have any advice on how young intelligence professionals can up-level their careers or just get connected to the community in general? Yeah, so volunteering is super important to me, not just in its traditional sense of service, which of course is super important, but also being able to open yourself up open yourself up to other opportunities that maybe you wouldn't have thought of, you, you wouldn't throw your hat in the ring for because being uncomfortable in that space, for example. So if you're a security guy or gal and say you want to try your hand at cyber, nothing stops you from tapping your colleague in the cybersecurity side of the shop and saying, hey, can you explain that what you do on a daily basis down to a you know 10-year-old level so I can understand this a little bit better? And then even having uh, exchange phone numbers and emails so you can reach out to each other because really cybersecurity or Intel or, or regular physical security, they're all the same thing, just it's the same coin, it's just two different sides of it. And we tend to create artificial barriers because we can't speak to each other that, that normally and casually. So I think that being able to understand and break down that technical know-how and that language goes a really, really long way. Do you think you have to start in the military or law enforcement to break into this career in the corporate space or are there other avenues? No, not at all. Uh, some of the best analysts I've met didn't have any experience in that field. They were recent grads. They were very quick on the social media side for so- social media exploitation or looking at things and trying to figure out is someone really a threat based on their background. Sure, the military will teach you that at times, so will law enforcement, but there's no, there's no reason why you should limit yourself to just those two fields. And what about recruiting? What are some good places to look for folks that are in this space? Yeah, recruiting is, is super easy uh, lately because of being able to go online and just pull really amazing folks. But it's really my network that I lean on a lot. So my counterparts at other companies across the sectors. So think of oil and gas, aviation, tech, agro, pharma, hospitality, finance. I mean, the list goes on and on. Any major company you can imagine, a Fortune 50 has one of me sitting you know, on their teams at the table, right? So it's easy to reach out to someone and say, hey, do you have someone in your pool that maybe you weren't able to hire because you don't have any open slots? And then we always trade resumes back and forth all the time. What's the biggest change you've seen in this industry since you started? Really, it's a lot of this collaboration. It's helped us all get stronger and better and be able to answer things a lot faster. Because if you think about it, like what happened in Russia just yesterday, 
it doesn't make any sense for us to all draft something zero to 60 in a vacuum, right? So it's so much easier to reach out to your counterparts and say, hey, what are you guys doing about this? Maybe even one of, one of my counterparts might actually have an office or a footprint in that country that's been affected. And now I would have ground truth from them, which is better than me just trying to piece it all together through my analysts and reaching out, looking at media or researching it ourselves. It's better to just collaborate and share resources. And I found that's one of the big key changes lately. That wasn't always the case as short as 10 years ago. And do you find the competitive walls tend to come down a bit, especially when a crisis arises? Absolutely, yeah. And thanks to OSAC and, and DSAC and all these analyst roundtables and all these different conferences and groups that exist today, you know, like we always say, there's no competition on the security side. And these walls have come down and it's been great to be able to um, exchange information with each other freely. You know, when it comes to technology, what do you think is the impact of AI and language learning models on all the information and on the other side, disinformation out there? Is it going to make the job of the analyst much harder? Yeah, so I'll be frank, I don't have a background on the AI side of the shop, but obviously I'm a consumer of that technology, right? So we are looking at ways on how do we take historical incidents that have obviously already happened, like say there's a protest at the corner of X and Y Street, right? When the system or tech flagged it, a human has to look at it and say, yes, I see what's happening here, but the question is, would it have a negative or a positive impact on us? And then we go left or right decision tree based on what we're seeing. Now, you can teach machines that. It's not that complicated, that part of it, right? So long story short, what we'd love to do, and we're looking at ways of doing this, is taking and ingesting information that's machine-fed into our common operating picture, teaching the system itself through AI tools on what should be the next course of action, and then being able to do that, all of that, without really a human having to lean in on that side. That's the holy grail, far from it right now, because these pieces set very, very siloed. So we're trying to see how do we combine this. And the other half of it really is the data. So the secret's in the data, right? To be able to have 5, 10, 15 years of protest data that's clean, very hard to get. So do you see it's not going to replace the analyst? It's just going to empower the analyst to be that much better and be able to sift through more information? Initially, yes. But the goal is to have the system go take from the first pickup of the incident all the way down to communicating this to the stakeholders saying, this has happened at the corner of X and Y. We recommend, recommend X and Y based on what we know and just go from there. And that's the holy grail to get it directly from the AI to the people impacted and maybe cut the analyst out and then let the analyst focus on the much bigger issues. Exactly. All right. So your team is watching everything from a strategic standpoint. So you're seeing that there's danger in the world. You're letting the organization know about that. Days go by. Then your tactical team, let's say, picks something up. There's something happening now. What do you do? How do you go into action? Can you maybe give some final thoughts on the crisis response that you go through to take that tactical intelligence and do something about it? It really comes down to the city itself and what the major threats are, the most common threats that we would most probably, you know, bump up against. So, for example, in Haiti, Port-au-Prince, the capital, we do fly there as an airline. We have local folks that works for us in the city. And then, of course, we've got our plane crew, the, the airline crew that comes in along with the pilot and all the others, right? So we've built contingency planning for any sort of what-if scenario. So everything from a kidnapping to an accident or a health issue, what have you. But it's not enough to build these plans. What really happens is you build a one-pager, easy-to-explain emergency action plan is what we call it. But then you have to communicate that plan to folks. Otherwise, it's just a piece of paper. So for example, the local team 
which we will call the incident management team, the local incident management team, they know their part in a kidnapping. God forbid that happens to one of ours. But that's, again, also not enough. Someone back home at headquarters, uh, meaning a crisis management team, needs to be tied to that local incident management team so they can talk to each other. And they've already gone through and drilled and tabletopped and done this so they know if this happens, here's what we're going to do. And then we do a dry run of this to make sure are all the moving parts working, are all the folks that are invited to the table from legal to HR to the decision-making authority to the security folks, the business continuity folks, the emergency planning and response folks, all of these folks are at the table, right? But now you have to make sure, do the moving parts work? Are these people empowered enough to make these decisions for their teams? And more importantly, how soon can we bring our team member back home from dangerous safety? Well, Mo, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Well, you can learn more about Mo and his work with American Airlines by checking out the links in the show notes. Tune in next week for more expert advice to help you protect your business and people. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.